another episode of Boating Insider. I am absolutely thrilled for this morning's conversation. So I've got Rick Hines, CEO and founder of Vessel Vanguard and Boating Insider. And we also have Steve D'Antonio of Steve D'Antonio Consulting Incorporated. Um, there's so much that we want to dive into with this conversation. Steve has been in the business since 1988, where he started as a mechanic and an electrician in the marine industry. And through all of his adventures and all of his accomplishments, I mean, he now has his own consulting company, which is offering uh, management, consulting, technical training, pre-purchase services to boat owners, boat builders, um, all kinds of support. And then outside of that, he is also an accomplished writer. And his writing is coming from curiosity, really looking to see where he can make an impact in the industry um, from oil analysis to uh, you know manufacturer design. We're just really going to cover the gamut. So I'm super grateful for everybody to be here. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Rick. Um, Rick, let's jump into it. I know you had a question right out of the gate. So good morning, yeah, gentlemen. No, I, think, uh, I think we should just, uh, Steve, maybe if you could just give everybody an overview of um, what you do. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so in, in the consulting business, which I, which I started in uh, 2007, uh, just coincidentally, I started that business the very month that the recession started. But I, of course, nobody knew that was coming. So it was trial by fire. Uh, that was but I, one I, hell of a time, right? <laughs> it was, it was, uh, I survived it. And, uh, anyway, uh, so the, the uh, initial impetus for, uh, for starting the business and doing what I primarily do, which is guiding people in the boat purchase process. I'm not a broker. I'm not a surveyor. Uh, but I'm, I like to refer to myself as an advocate for the boat buyer and so uh, the initial product that I offered with that business was to guide people towards the right boat before they decided what they were going to buy to help, help them figure out what they wanted, what made the most sense for them for their experience level, their budget, and the kind of cruising they wanted to do. Uh, I felt like if I could get them into the right boat and then I could inspect it before they bought it, uh, I could help them avoid a lot of the heartache and unhappiness that I saw. I managed a boatyard for 11 years and I had many, many people come to me with boats they had just bought uh, that uh, they had all of the fun stuff they wanted to do to it. You know, now that they got it, they want to put new electronics in it and a new tender and maybe paint. And I would go on the boat or one of my staff would and I would come away and say, well, before you do that, you need $50,000 worth of electrical and raw water plumbing and seacocks and running gear work. And that would really burst their, you know, their bubble and their budget. And, and I delivered that message countless times. And while it felt good to be able to say, I can fix all this stuff. I didn't like being the guy delivering that really unpleasant message to them that, that they hadn't really bought what right. they thought they were buying. Most of the time it was a, a, a pre-owned boat, but sometimes it was even a new vessel. And uh, so I, I did that enough and I finally said, you know, I, I, there's got to be a way that I can get to people before they make the decision. So I started the, the consulting business to consult with folks uh, to guide them to the right boat, then do a thorough inspection on it before they actually committed <clears throat> to buying it. <clears throat> and that inspection often would take place at the same time as a, as a hull survey and an engine survey. So it was concurrent. Um, but I looked at the boat through the eyes of a boat builder and a, a wrench turner, you know, a mechanic and an electrician and uh, identified things that were different than what surveyors saw. Not, you know, they, they have a role to play. Uh, what I do is something different than that. So that, that was the first sort of product 
that I offered. And that uh, over the years has expanded now to, to 12 or 14 different uh, products and, and maybe the, the biggest of which is guiding people through the, the boat build process. So now I, I get to somebody before they decide to have a boat built, before they commit to a builder to help them find the right builder, ask the right questions, and then specify the details of that construction with equipment lists and, and uh, design features and, and details about the build, uh, inspect the vessel while it's being built at the yard, so I'm, I'm traveling, I do about 240,000 miles a year now. And many of those trips are to Asia and to Europe where the boats are being built. I'll go to the yard, inspect the product or uh, during the process, during the build process. And then again, when it's complete, uh, so that they have peace of mind. And, uh, and, and I, I emphasize to builders, just, uh, just to finish that thought, I emphasize, <clears throat> I don't want to be their adversary. I, I'm a boat builder. I, I want to help boat builders build a better boat. And when I built boats, my, you know, you can't see the forest for the trees as the saying goes. So for an outsider to come in and look at it, and I don't do that to, uh, to, to, uh, justify my existence or denigrate the builder. I do it because I want them to build a really good boat. So the customer is happy with them and with me. And so it's a collaborative process. That's my that's my goal is to, again, not be an adversary to boat builders. I want to be an ally. And, and, uh, in, in many cases I say to them, look, this is free consulting. Your, your customer is paying me <laughs> right. to do this and you're benefiting from what I'm seeing. So let's, let's make the best of it. Well, it's also probably your approach because like a lot of times people would be like, Hey, I'm working for the owner. I'm going to show them that I'm working for them and I'm just going to bust chops. Right. And, you know, the real way to solve problems out there is to just uh, make it a win-win, you know. Right, right, um, right. And, right. and like you said, there's a lot of things, you, you know, you bring it back to the manufacturer. Uh, I actually want to go back a little further than that. So as being one of those perpetual boat buyers out there. <laughs> we, love, we love you, by the way, boat. in the marine industry. Right. <laughs> always, always searching for the perfect boat, right? And then saying, I think I found it. And then you get it. And there's always modifications you want to make to it. There's always problems. The surveys, you go out, they say everything is fine. And then there's about 50 or 60 other things that pop up that you're just uh, not yeah. comfortable with. Yep. But what's interesting is I, I would imagine that both, most people don't really know that there's a service out there like yours because, um, not enough, you know, people. being <laughs> able to, yeah, being able to tell people, Hey, listen, what are you actually looking to do and getting the understanding and being exposed to so many boats and so many manufacturers, um, steering people into the right, uh, place versus what naturally steers them is the bling. You get on board. Is the salon nice? Is this good? Show. Is that good? Yeah. Um, you know, and and what happens is it, it's probably like you said, it's a win-win because, you know, I get on these boats and you think it's great. And you look at the layout and it's all wonderful. And I'll go down into the engine rooms on them and make sure this, you know, that they're laid out properly. I can only mm -hmm. visually inspect. I mean, I, I could see something glaring, but I'm not going to. Uh, pull it apart. So I'll give you an example. Of the current boat that I have, I just simply need to change solenoid, fuel solenoid. And um, uh, it was rusted, you know, or something just, and I let's just change it very small part. 
only to find out that you have to take like half the engine room apart, yeah. drain all your fuel tanks and uh, a $200 part with an hour's worth of labor to actually do it is now, so it could be like this gigantic cost. And what it does to the boat buyers, and it's a big problem for manufacturers, and at some point you say, look, I really like this thing, but I don't know how the hell these guys designed it. If you have to fix something, you, you, it's, it's, a, it's just not worth it. And mm -hmm. where you can have a, a, um, an ongoing uh, buyer of some of these uh, boats, and pretty much every boat is expensive today, um, people check out. They just don't, they don't realize what they're getting into. Because like you said, they're ready to go spend the money on the new electronics improve this, paint the boat, give it, do a new, you know, new carpet or whatever, if they're buying something used and, um, only to find out that they're handed with a ton of crap. Uh, it's extremely frustrating. Um, yeah, I, I, so yeah. and you come in, so how would you, how do you do that? Like, so do you just ask questions? Cause you, you have, and not to be sexist here, but the guy and the man and the woman have two different, entirely different requirements mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, one wins yeah. out, you know? So yeah. how do you step through just the, uh, not even those differences, but the personalities or the, how do you cut through what's the best type of boat for somebody? What questions mm -hmm. do you ask? Mm -hmm. I actually, uh, for one of my services, I have a questionnaire, uh, a multi-page questionnaire that not only helps me figure out what they want, it often helps them sort of focus because mm -hmm. as you say, a lot of people go to the boat show and the bling is very attractive. You know, the touch screen and the, uh, you know, the glass bridge and, and, uh, the, mm -hmm. you know, the think the things that are impressive, but don't necessarily have anything to do with the, how, how reliable the boat is, how seaworthy it is, how quiet it is when it's running and a variety of other things. So the questionnaire uh, often helps with that. But what I find, interestingly, the vast majority of people that are coming to me already have an idea of what they want. They're, I, occasionally I get somebody saying, hey, I want a boat, but beyond that I have no idea what to get. Most people, the, my kind of clients anyway, are inveterate researchers. So they will come to me saying, okay, we've already looked at these uh, you know, a, a slew of boats and we've narrowed it down to two or three. We like this about this one. We like that about that one. The, 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 you know, salesman told us X and, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't know an, enough to make the decision of which one we should buy. And so, uh, I, interestingly, I don't find a lot of, um, disagreement when it's a couple that, and maybe it's because they've already figured this out by the time they do call me. But in many cases, they're like, yeah, we both think we want this. Uh, yes, there are different goals. And, and the man may say, Hey, I want to stand up engine room again, not to be sexist because I, I have clients where the woman is the engineer and the man runs the boat. It's, so and it's he, growing too. Partner. The women yeah. are starting to, yeah. to join and in, I'm, which is great to see. And I, I'm delighted to see that and, and to foster that. Um, but yes, they, they, they often each have their own goals, but they can, they can get them on the same boat. So it's very rare that, you know, one partner is saying, Hey, I, I want a brand X and another says, I want a brand A. They're usually X and Y or, you know, Y and Z that they're much closer uh, together. And so at that point, um, I, I, I work with a confidentiality agreement because I tell people, I want to be able to tell you everything I know about any builder that I have direct experience with. And if I have clients who own that boat, the feedback that I get, I want you to benefit mm -hmm. from that. 
And so uh, once we're working under that confidentiality agreement, I can tell you everything uh, that I've experienced, you know, good, bad and indifferent. Mm -hmm. And that um, will help people make the decision. And I'm I'm uh, careful to say I don't want you to do something because I told you to do it. I don't want people to say, Mm -hmm. hey, I bought that book because Steve told me to buy it. I would rather educate them and say, look, here are the benefits of this brand of this manufacturer, of the support they offer, uh, or if it's a used boat, you know, I, I've got, you know, a half dozen other clients running this same boat. They've got tens of thousands of miles under the keel. Here, here's what their experience has been. And I've run those boats and here's what I think. Now you make the decision. I've given you the tools. Uh, you now decide now that you know what I've told you, uh, it really has to be their decision. I'm, I'm, you know, fairly adamant about that. And, and in one out of 20 cases, will I say, do not buy that boat. You know, whatever you do, I, I, that, that is one I need you to stay away from. That's actually rare. Uh, in, 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 in the vast majority of cases, I can say, look, here are the details. I think once you know them, you will make the decision. You won't need me to tell you. I'm just going to share with you my, my experience. So, Steve, what people will do, so the benefits of that right off the bat are, hey, we really like this boat. This is great. You've discovered some problems in the past with this type of boat or setup of maybe where certain wires are being run or some things that just are not right with the boat and you're bringing that up. And then I'm sure the obviously obvious question is, well, if we buy it, can we modify it? Could we change that? Mm-hmm. And you're able to tell them what those things are. You're able to say, hey, listen, this is going to cost you $20,000 more or $50,000 more. Mm-hmm. And at least that gives the buyer the ability to say, hey, let me go back and negotiate or let me um, just accept that that's going to be on the list. And here is my overall budget. And so when I'm making the purchase, I'm making I'm, I'm not getting surprised. I get to do the things that I want to do, the play stuff, the bling, if you will, uh, the new you know, technology. But I also have to take care of the things, um, you know, throughout the boat. Um, and um, I'm sure, obviously, from the used side, but it's interesting that you'll go out to the uh, under construction boats, which, uh, you know, people don't realize this. But again, having bought so many I can't tell you how many times you get a brand new boat. One of my favorite center console type manufacturers <laughs> uh, that I buy, but I'm fully aware of some of their Achilles heel. Um, you know, you buy these boats, you spend a lot of money on them and you're changing, you know, you, you got to change all the sea kikes because they're mylar. And I just hate those things because they never work. They always crack on me. I can't yeah. believe I have to do it, but it's something I know going in. I just don't, um, I don't like them. I've always had uh, issues with them and I always felt more comfortable with the bronze, but that's a little thing. Mm. But um, when you get onto some of these bigger boats, having somebody like yourself, people wouldn't know about that. Uh, They wouldn't know to look at these uh, things. And a lot of times the, the, the things that you consider, Hey, it's got the safety. It's got the, um, you know, automatic fire extinguisher in the engine room. So I'm safe. And it's got the, uh, you know, other, you know, safety features on. But, you know, if you look at, I had an experience a couple of years ago, you know, we have the automatic uh, fire systems. Um, we were over in the Bahamas. I think uh, I, I know where the, you're going, uh, know where you're going yeah. with this. Yeah. <laughs> I hit the bow thruster and uh, you just basically heard a, a, an explosion, an explosion, just 
things were taken care of, inspected, not much you can look at on those bow thrusters, especially when they're electric. Several things turned out from there. We were fortunate that the thing just ripped apart and it broke away without going through the hull or anything. So we were very fortunate. And uh, as we go to turn the thing off, we're watching the electrical lines and we turn off the switch. And as we're going, we realize that the manufacturer made that somehow bypass the switch. So it was still live, right? So um, we had to then take out the fuse. We, we stepped through and it just because you have, have some knowledge of it and the, and the people on board, you know, we were able to go, that doesn't look right. Um, but that was done from the manufacturer. The other thing was that people said, hey, you're really lucky that thing didn't go on fire. And you're sitting there going, um, Absolutely. it's in its own compartment. Yep. Why isn't there a, um, an automatic fire extinguisher there in these places? Well, I think one of the bullet points that we had said that, you know, Steve, when it comes to finding the right vessel, you want to make sure that mm -hmm. it's mechanically sound. I think you doubled, you know, on top of that, I was saying not only do you want to make sure that it's mechanically sound, but you want to make sure that you have the options to to adjust and to cater to your needs and what you ultimately want to have in your experience. So, Steve, what does that entail? Like, what, what sure. goes into that? Well, let me uh, just, you, uh, Rick, you said something a minute ago that I just wanted to uh, touch on, and, and uh, which was cost. And uh, mm -hmm. the, it, when I poll boat owners, one, one of the top three things that bothers them is not just cost, but it's unknown cost. Mm -hmm. That That exactly. is what irks owners about. That's what drives people into golf more than anything else, any boat owners <laughs> away from boating and into other things because they, they you know, cynically say, well, I, I, I was told it was going to cost X, so I just triple it to be safe. And then, then I know that mm -hmm. I'm not going to be surprised. And I, I hate to hear that. I don't, I don't want my own industry to be thought of that way. And so I've worked mm -hmm. hard to, to drag, you know, my colleagues kicking and screaming sometimes into it, treating boat owners more respectfully when it comes to cost and, and to help them anticipate what things are going to cost or tell them what things are going to cost. And so you mentioned that in the survey process mm -hmm. for the inspections that I do, I attach labor costs to every observation. So if I point out that the mm -hmm. batteries are not properly installed and this needs to be improved because it doesn't comply with the standards, I'll add to that the number of labor hours I think that's going to take. And I do that for virtually every observation that I write mm -hmm. in a report. And I just I just finished one of these yesterday, a three-day inspection on a boat <clears throat> that'll have 150 observations. Uh, and, and those buyers will have some indication of how much each one of those is going to cost so they can work that into their sort of <laughs> negotiation process. And look, I, I'm not trying to unduly beat up sellers on cost or make sure. myself unpopular with brokers. And I, I don't get many Christmas cards from brokers, but that's understandable because it, it, it injects into that process enlightenment for the buyer, which we don't have, you know, that that's something that's not really happening. So it's another layer of something to deal with for brokers, but good brokers recognize the value of this because you end up with a happy buyer who is going to come back to that broker in two years and say, Hey, I want another boat or I want a bigger boat mm -hmm. rather than, Hey, I bought a boat that had a whole bunch of things wrong with it that I didn't know about. So I, I feel like that's beneficial overall, even if immediately 
you know, the, the, the selling brokers are sort of upset that now this, this buyer is negotiating with this long list of things that are wrong. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. And I tell the buyer, my client, look, if, if the seller set a price on the boat of X uh, because they thought it was in a certain condition, but now we've brought to them this list of 20 things. The report is 150, but the, but we're picking out these 20 things that I say, look, this is the responsibility of the seller. This is deferred maintenance. Uh, things that they didn't know had to be done, but were supposed to be done. It's not builder errors. It's stuff that, you know, that, that was uh, neglected or deferred. It's only fair now, now that they know that that, you know, the, the boat is in a different condition than they thought it was when they established the price, that they negotiate. That, that's the right thing to do. Steve, on that, on that point, right, I would venture to guess that a lot of boat owners, you know, have the boat cleaned up, everything looks good in their mind. They have absolutely no idea that they oh. needed to do that maintenance. No, no. Uh, no the vast, vast majority of those things, I, I will like, even say, this seller, you didn't know about these. I don't think you're trying to fool us. I don't think you were hiding they, these. Like, you didn't know they were wrong. Yes, absolutely. So I, I was forced to get a larger boat, uh, you know, disclosure that my Famous wife really last words. wanted to do that, <laughs> right? I was forced to do it. I wanted to enjoy it. Yeah. Um, they were famous to get for, a larger boat. Yes. <laughs> I need to and I was that. perfectly happy with, uh, with, uh, just getting out on the water and, uh, going out into the Gulf and clearing my mind and enjoying that. But bouncing around, um, across waves was not her biggest thing. So, Hey, you know what? You gotta have that, you know, just we have to, to do logic. what we have to do sometimes, right? <laughs> gotta do so, what you gotta do. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, as a boat buyer and somebody who does enjoy them. So I got into the, to the mix and I bought, you know, a larger, um, cruiser, uh, used. And, um, and then when you get on it, there was absolutely for, you know, several years old, the boat is several years old. There's absolutely no maintenance records whatsoever, mm. period. There's a couple of little pieces of paper and a few receipts in a bag someplace. Yeah. And you're literally flying blind and being from the aviation side of things, because we, we manage the aviation for, you know, uh, maintenance records for aircraft. I'm sitting in there going, mm. there's no, is there any systems that I could track this stuff with? You know, is there... This is the same as an airplane. There's mm-hmm. the same systems on an aircraft. And that's not saying giant boats. You could go to a 40-foot cruiser, and you've got almost the same exact systems that are on an aircraft today. Yeah. And um, and there's absolutely no – when was this changed? Did you change the zincs on – You know, did you check the zincs on your engine? they got to be checked every 50 hours. When was the coolant mm-hmm. changed? When was this inspection done on the engine? This major thing, no one could tell you anything. And for a large part of it, because they couldn't tell what it was, the seller just kept taking numbers off the price. Now, that didn't do me any good because the 500 other things that were wrong with it, from wiring to you name it, uh, you just wind up turning it into just tons of money and tons. of. I was getting nitpicked at first. And then I just decided to go through the entire boat and then just change everything out. These are unexpected mm-hmm. costs. But once you did that, and once I was able to put some sort of hodgepodge tracking thing on it, I got in front of it, but it was just not good enough. And I eventually wound up getting into the business because I couldn't take it anymore. I was stuck. 
having to be with flying blind. And I was very serious. It annoyed me to such a point where it's like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be forced out of boating because I can't, because nobody will manage anything mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you just have to do it yourself. And that's why I grabbed Vessel Vanguard. We put a few companies together and, um, and now I'm just releasing the last product. Finally, I am comfortable with a product that anybody could use and stay way ahead of their maintenance and their safety issues from a recreational commercial. So we're kind of proud of that. Yes, it's a plug, but it's actually very important to have something like that because I think without it, mm-hmm. all those sellers that are out there don't realize that there's a hundred maintenance items that they needed to do. Yeah. You know, how many batteries do you get that just hold on oh. and might be five years old and you get 20 of them to replace, you know, on some of the bigger boats. It's, it's, well, the cost I, is I, amazing. Yeah. I, I give this speech on a weekly basis. And again, as recently as, you know, yesterday with uh, new owners of a boat that mm-hmm. you as the owner of a boat can't know everything that needs to be done maintenance wise, no matter how diligent you are, no matter how detail oriented you are, it's virtually impossible to have that kind of knowledge. Not only that, most marine industry professionals can't, you know, because we have they people don't say, know. look, I, I <laughs> give my boat to the yard every year and I tell them, do whatever has to be done. I give them a blank check. I'm not arguing with them about the price. And yet, you know, the windlass fails and I find out it's supposed to be taken apart annually and cleaned and lubricated and, and they didn't do it. And I'm not blaming them, you know, but n- nobody, right. no one person or no one entity boatyard in particular can really know what needs to be done and spend the amount of time that's required. I'm not going to sit down and read every manual and make, you know, a spreadsheet for service. That's what you guys do obviously and have done. And, and uh, I'll just, well, let's say, you know, well, like you say that, uh, you know, when you, they won't know to do that. Something as simple as taking that windlass apart and, and checking it out. It's, it's a critical piece of equipment and you should test it. People don't even know you should test like, Test your windlass. Make sure that thing drops out and it pulls yeah. it back. Because if that engine goes out mm-hmm. and you can't anchor mm-hmm. yourself, you got mm-hmm. big mm-hmm. problems. People cool. don't think yeah. of those things. And yeah. what yeah. we try to do too is to actually give them that information. Hey, here's your key safety equipment. This mm-hmm. is what you need to do with it. Run these tests. Do these checklists. They're they're critical. They're important. It's just an operating uh, thing. It just makes the whole thing safer. But it's but when you go into the problem with going into maintenance, um, it's a big problem. Hey, I'm pulling the boat out. I'm painting the bottom. I'm putting the new paint on. Whatever. Did you check your cutlass bearings? <laughs> when was the last time you changed them? Because because the minute you put that boat in and you spend all that money to take it out and put it on the hard, mm-hmm. and you've got all those costs associated with, it and you drop it down without fail that cutlass bearing is going to go in mm-hmm. a month. Mm-hmm. Now you've got to double your cost when you could have fixed it there uh, while it was on. Yeah. The other thing too, is you'll find that they'll only do one. They won't do the other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, Hey, this is there. Everybody's reactive. Uh, owners are reactive and service centers are reactive because service centers just don't have the manpower. Yeah. Hey, no, when no, he, no. Pay, pay, people, pay, 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 go drop it in. We don't, we got five other, 10 other boats right. that have to go today. That's we right. have no time. And then there's less expertise as well. So people don't check as well. They don't even know to check. Mm-hmm. So it really is on the owner 
you know, to take responsibility and say, hey, listen, I want to come in for service. I'm pulling the boat. But besides painting the bottom and putting uh, prop speed on, I need you to do these 36 other items. They're small, mm-hmm. but um, mm-hmm. and I'm raising my costs on the service. But overall, I'm going to get to use the boat more. It's going to be right. safer. It's going to be less costly because I'm going to get in front of things and they won't be surprises. So right. I think that's why, Steve, the, the things that you're that you that you do are invaluable to the industry, to the to the boater that's out there. Um, I look, you know, I was looking I, I do follow you on on, uh, uh, you know, uh, on your post on LinkedIn, yeah. you put out. And I have to say that, you know, you have an intricate knowledge of things. I get very frustrated when I, you know, I, I had a, an, I have an electrician come on board every year and I'm like, Hey, check that the grounding is right. You know, that the boat is bonded properly. Do you see anything, you know, things like that. And they're very good. But when I compare it with your thoroughness and your understanding of what to look for, um, it, it seems like your service is uh, not only for the front end, but also to do like, you know, some, I think you should do periodic surveys on the boat and see if there's any room for improvement mm-hmm. or, or danger. Do you do things like that as well? Like if I called you up and said, Steve, I want you to go through and tell me all the, all the potential mm-hmm. safety things. Now I think my mm-hmm. boat is in pretty good shape. I, I, I've been able to get ahead of the, um, you know, Things just popping up out of nowhere for the most part. You can't, you know, avoid that entirely. But I just see things that I think may be off from a manufacturer standpoint. I don't like where certain wires are run. Um, and there, you know, is there a way to improve that? Or am I just making mountains out of molehills, you know, mm-hmm. and get that opinion and get a report on that? Yeah. Is that something else that you do? Yeah, probably 25% of the inspections I do are for are on vessels that are owned by people and cruising them. They're not selling them. Mm-hmm. They're not buying them. They're not, they, they just want to know um, what the uh, what the condition of that vessel is, so that they mm-hmm. can you know cruise it more confidently and and not worry about uh, things failing uh, that that they sure. didn't know were the insidious uh, incipient failures of stuff that in many cases looks right. That's a, that's a sort of mm-hmm. mantra of mine that I can go on some boats and, it, and it's beautifully done. You know, the wiring is all squared off and the hoses are secured and, but it's wrong in many cases. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of, that's tricky because people will look at it and say, wow, it's so clean. And, and, you know, they have great attention to detail, but they're not following the standards. And that's a, you know, yet another, uh, subject that's worthy of some discussion is many of the things that I'm looking at, of course, I have an opinion. I, I'm opinionated and, and unabashedly <clears throat> when I look at something and criticize it, it's usually based on firsthand experience. It's not because I read an article about it. It might be because I wrote an article about it or I've seen it a hundred times, you know, on a boat fail. And I can say, look, the way that is, I know it's going to fail. It needs to be redone. But if I can back up my observations with a third-party standards organization like American Boat and Yacht Council, then it's not just me, you know, beating up a seller or beating up a boat builder saying, you know, this is wrong. Well, what do you know? You know, we built, you know, 200 boats. Well, how can you tell us that that's wrong? If I can reinforce an observation with an ABYC standard, then that, you know, that that adds a, a level of validity to my observations that 
again, beneficial to the boat builder, beneficial to the boat owner. Uh, you know, it's, it, 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 I, it's cliche, but I do believe it's a win-win and I mm-hmm. encourage, you know, boat builders who, who are not complying with those standards to get savvy, join the organization, get staff certified, uh, because it, it makes for a more reliable and safer boat, but, but also a better boat. So mm-hmm. that, that, you know, when you, you say you, you look at your boat, you don't like the way, why, you know, you look at use that example of all the wiring. Sure. Well, ABYC has a standard for how wires need to be sure. supported. So it's not just you saying to the builder, Hey, why don't you guys do this better? You can say, why don't you do it better? Oh, and by the way, ABYC says the wires have to be supported every 18 inches. And, uh, you know, the, the securing mechanism needs to not chafe against the wire, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That that's harder for them so to argue with. That- do you find that the manufacturer, I would imagine some manufacturers have to be like, give us that information. We got to incorporate this in. We have too many problems yeah. with these things. Well, uh, uh, and, they, and, they're, and they're open to that? Yes. Better boat builders. If I do an inspection on a new boat for a client, a good boat builder will get a hold of that report and get it right back to their factory and say, hey, let's talk about some of this stuff. And, and I, you know, I know that firsthand in some experiences because they'll tell me, but in other cases, mm-hmm. I'll look at that same boat two years later and I can see they've made changes, you know, based on my observations. And I'm like, great. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, that, that really is gratifying to see that. Sadly, other builders, I see the same wrong thing year after year after year. They, they don't. And, and their attitude is, hey, we're selling boats. Why should we change anything? You know, it's, it works. I, and, and, they're, and they're raising the prices and they're getting it. And, and, and yep. because the public doesn't know. Right. They're just assuming, they, right. they're assuming it's almost like a car. Oh, it's going to meet all the safety standards. It'll right. all be done right. Right. And if anything isn't wrong, there'll be class action suits and the companies will be in big trouble and the whole bit. No. And it doesn't exist in the, no. you know, it, it sort of jumps to when you talk about these manufacturer things. Uh, and I know that we um, it's just been in the news, the Conception um, mm, fire, the dive boat. Yes. The dive boat. yes. Um, <clears throat> you know, now there's uh, the captains uh, on trial now or whatever the case is. He was convicted. And, he was convicted. Okay. Uh, I didn't. Uh, okay. Yeah, and just, what did they, they convict him on? Days ago. Uh, yeah, it, right, right. It's, it's a, uh, that the, the specific term is, uh, related to, um, merchant marine. It's, uh, I forget the, the terminology, but it's essentially manslaughter. You know, wow. what, what on land we would call land slaughter. It's, it's mariners right. something. Again, it's escaping me at the moment, but it was just, that information was just released. I made a post about it on my Facebook okay. page. I, uh, find it. Yeah, I was following it and I just, uh, I've been yeah. following it, but I haven't, yeah. I knew that he was on trial, but, but yeah. a perfect example of so it's yeah. a tragedy on so many fronts because when yes. I read the report on that, yes, you sit there and you're like, the Coast Guard said they had a great relationship with the company. The, everybody did everything that was fine. If there were, there were very few problems found in the inspections. When there were, they were taken care of on the spot or the very next day. They took care of all the things they were supposed to do. They actually had all the required uh, smoke detectors, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had the escape hatch. And when I read all of this, and they're obviously going after the captain. Now, the only thing that I saw in that report, honestly, is that, you know, I'm imagining he got convicted on not having a watch. Because that would be. He, he, well, un- he, he, I think the conviction was based on the fact that they were, again, I, I'm not a lawyer and I don't want to say anything sure, sure. incorrect, but they, that there was negligence 
because they did not have a roving, you know, fire watch essentially, which they are required to do. And, and the captain is responsible for that. So I think that's how the jury looked at it. Yeah. Sure. And I'll ultimately, it up, Steve, if it's Siemens manslaughter. Okay. So yep. the official charge. Oh, half right. <laughs> you were, you were the there. Term, <laughs> yeah. The term is, uh, but, but the issue was that that was at the end of the road. But, I, yes. but I, I'll tell you something. When I looked at that report, and it is disturbing to me. You know, mm -hmm. you manufacture mm -hmm. these things. Fire on a boat, there's so many places a fire could start. You're talking nice. about in the walls, in uh, there could be some paper, there could be something. Uh, when you look at the, you've got all these people down in a, on a hold, you've got this tiny hatch to get out of, Yeah. right? Yeah. On the top of yeah. a bunk bed someplace with 30 right. people or yep. 40 people down there. Um You've got no smoke detectors above you because there's no people's uh, there, and it was met the requirements. Yep. Um, and then if you have a fire someplace, you have two means of escape that go to the same place. And mm -hmm. in this case, the salon's on fire, yep. and both the hatch and the uh, main stairway out is going into the salon. Right. And when you look at all the manufacturing and the regulations, you've got a tragedy on multiple sides. You've got a mm -hmm. captain that made a mistake that maybe he did it often, maybe he figured he was getting complacent. Uh, we don't need a watch. The, you know, we have smoke detectors or whatever. We have, they, we have a crew member down in the, in, the, um, in the thing there to take care of it. And there was no way for these people to escape. And everybody, you know, from the manufacturer, boat was built years ago, though, you know, before they changed the standards. But you can't get out. But what I found interesting about that, Steve, is that if you go down to any modern cruiser that's out there and you go down, most of the stairs are midship and you've got your aft cabin, you know, your aft, which is usually the main stateroom, you've got your forward and maybe you have a, a mid. If you have a fire in that hallway Can't get out. and you're in the aft cabin, you're going to die. There's yeah. no way out. Yeah. And uh, when you go to the front stateroom, you find that a lot of these boats have no ladders to get out of the hatch. Mm -hmm. They're very small. They're very tight. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. smoke and panic, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. What, what's your opinion on that? Well, because it, it, yeah. it hits almost all boaters, you know? Uh, so let me say that the, uh, the Conception Dive Boat Fire is something that I have followed um, Mm -hmm. single-mindedly, let's say, since it happened. Um, a fire is something that I, that is my biggest concern on a boat. And, and I have been a huge advocate for smoke detection on boats for over a decade. I've been pounding that drum that smoke detectors are cheap and uh, you need to have more than just two, you know, on the average boat. Mm -hmm. on, a, on a 60 foot boat that I'm uh, involved with on a build, um, there'll be 14 or 15 smoke detection devices because they're in engine compartments, they're behind electrical panels, they're above bow thrusters and battery banks. I mean, again, they're cheap. I put them everywhere I can think of that there might be a fire or there has been, historically have been fires. So smoke, the fire and, and smoke detection, again, are, are things that I think about literally every day in this business. Mm -hmm. And as recently as yesterday, you know, on a boat that I was aboard, I talked sure. with those owners about, there was one smoke detector on the boat and it was in the engine room and, uh, <laughs> the escape, the escape, you know, mechanism for the forward cabin was a hatch 
that I probably could get out of that hatch. I'm relatively fit and I could probably manage to open that hatch and get out of it without a ladder or, or help. But I don't think either of them could. And I said, mm-hmm. you know, you, not only do you need to think about this, you need to do it. I tell every boat owner or boat buyer, if you think that's your escape mechanism, it isn't until you've proven it. I want you to get out of that without any help. And if there's no ladder and you can't get to it, then it's not, it doesn't work. And, and if you have children or older people on the boat and they can't get out of it, then it's not valid. Mm -hmm. So that, that is something that needs to be paid more attention to when the conception dive boat fire occurred a handful of recreational boat builders sat up and took note of that, even though it, it, it was not, you know, that's a commercial vessel, passenger carrying vessel, sure. recreational vessels aren't required to meet the same standards. They looked at it and said, we don't want to be on the front page because people died on our yeah. boat because they couldn't get out. So they changed their escape routes and, and uh, put in bigger hatches and, and put ladders in. And so I commend mm-hmm. those builders that did that, that learned from those lessons and put more smoke detectors in. There actually is an ABYC standard about mm-hmm. needs of escape from vessels and what the requirements are. And if you've, <clears throat> if you've got to go past a galley or over an engine room, then you need an ulterior alternate means of escape from a cabin. Mm-hmm. But from my perspective, I look at there are vessels that have uh, an engine room that is then connected to a lazarette space that then has a hatch to go out into the cockpit. The vast majority of those, you can't open the cockpit hatch from the inside. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. I don't want to be the guy who, you know, runs aft and through the engine room to get away from a fire or the boat sinking by the bow. And now I'm trapped in the lazarette because I can't open that hatch. And so that... Mm-hmm has been an area of sort of focus for me and, and now some boat builders and boat owners of mm-hmm. how, how do we, be, how, do, how can we make sure this can open from the inside? And, uh, you know, boat builders can have a lot of ingenuity when they're pressed for it. And I've challenged sure. some they of them to say, we need to come up with a, a means of doing this, a latch that can be open from the inside that can be, still be secure and the hatch is still watertight. And we've, it's been figured out, it's done, but most boats don't have it. You know, so on the, the awareness level, right? <clears throat> the company that that had that fire then retrofit the sister ship that they have with uh, yeah. escape hatches, yeah. right? On well, two sides. I mean, uh, I, right. yeah. I mean, and, and again, they were compliant, but compliant. You know, do, right. do you want to be the minimum? You know, uh, 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 if you look at the Coast Guard requirements for fire extinguishers ironically, in my opinion, they're woefully inadequate. If you have a fixed fire extinguishing system in an engine room and you have a 60 foot boat, you could conceivably have one other portable fire extinguisher and be compliant. I say you need to have a fire extinguisher in every cabin. In fact, no more than three steps away from a fire extinguisher anywhere on a boat. Again, they're cheap. And, and, you know, the, the, the best means of uh, you know, dealing with a fire is being able to uh, uh, attack it quickly. And if you've got a fire extinguisher mm-hmm. everywhere, then you can do that. So I, I don't want to be the bare minimum. I want to be able to uh, give people the best possible chance within reason and, and within, you know, mm-hmm. cost uh, uh, constraints of, of being able to escape from a compartment. Um, having, you know, spent many, many, many nights on boats, I think about if I'm asleep in a cabin and there's no other way out of it other than the door, you know, mm-hmm. that's uncomfortable for me. I, I, I don't like that. And so boat builders should be more conscious of that. The ABYC standards, I, I have to emphasize this, they're voluntary. 
So you're not required mm-hmm. to meet those. If the vessel is built to a classification society standard, that's different. Then, mm-hmm. then it becomes mandatory to meet that. Or if it's built to CE standards, for instance. But again, even the vessels that have those escape mechanisms, I find in too many cases they don't work. You know, if it's in an overhead, there's a there's a lanyard to pull the overhead panel down that then exposes the hatch. Yep. And I find people sometimes they they don't realize that's supposed to be sticking out. So somebody's working on that space, and when they're done, they tuck it in and put the hatch up. So now there's no lanyard. Right. There's nothing no, there. Right. You know, it's invisible now. Or a hatch that comes up into a galley. The actual hatch mechanism is, is glued down because things have been spilled in the galley, and they've now filled that gap. And it's you know oh. congealed and hardened, and I can't I can't push the hatch out as hard as I try. So until those things have been tested, I, I emphasize that to boat owners: you, you have to actually use it. And and by the same token, the means of reboarding a vessel. So if you fall overboard, you should be able to get back on the boat without help. Well, many mm-hmm. boats have no way to do that. There's no ladder that you can deploy from the water and, and not only mm-hmm. deploy, but it deploy easily with your eyes closed. You know, if it's dark and it's the water's cold and you're fully clothed and you're, you know, in shock because you've just fallen overboard, you need to be able to get that ladder out without thinking about it. And I tell boat owners, just practice, practice this and let, until you have jumped in the water and deployed that ladder without looking, you know, with your eyes closed, you haven't proven that it's going to work when you need to. And everybody on the boat needs to know about this. You know, there have been cases of people dying in cold water <clears throat> next to their boat at the dock because they fell in. Nobody's around. It's nighttime. It's November and, and they can't get back on board. So that, you know, fire and means of reboarding are two areas where, uh, Boat, boat owners don't give it enough thought. Boat builders in many cases, but not all. I'm happy to say, again, there's a higher awareness now of this, uh, you know, as a result of this tragedy. Um, but the onus is on the boat owner, really. You know, you're the, the sure, you know, you. You, you could I, you could do a couple of, you know, in terms of getting back on the boat, a um, couple of things uh, you as the owner, you should do it. I mean, um, especially when you have kids uh, years ago. You know, you're out in the bay or the water, it's dark water, it's not a swimming pool. Everybody could swim, you assume they'll be just be fine out in the water. But it's totally different out there, and then the panic sets in. So what we did is um just threw the anchor over and uh threw a couple of lines out with some uh you know safety rings, got them in their life jackets and threw them overboard. You know yeah. what I'm saying? In a safe yeah. place, so they could yeah. get used to the feeling and then to get back on the boat. Right. If you don't do these things, you just you don't have to create any danger. You do it in a safe place. Sure. But if you don't even do those simple things, then when the the shit hits the fan, right? It's panic and nobody knows right. what to do. If right. they know where the ladder is, if they know how it feels to get a, a wave in their face a little bit, right. then right. suddenly going into the water is not a, a big deal. So I think you're right. The, the 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 things need to be there. And I think for the most part, at least what I've seen, there are a lot of you know, ladders, you know, where you can, where you can get back onto the boats. Uh, but you got to make sure they're deep enough. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There, there are a lot of ladders. There are a right. lot, but I would say only a few are really ideal. And, and, uh, right, they're not long that, enough, right? That, that some, the swim platform is already 10 or 12 inches above the water and yep. the ladder only has three or four steps and it's not enough for, again, you know, a 20 year old may be able to do it. A football player, you know, 
but the average boat owner possibly can't. And so I say, look, you need to have a ladder that has six rungs on it that goes well into the water and and come and and rests at an angle that is comfortable right. for you so to you climb, climb up. It's not vertical or put, being pushed under the boat worse. So mm-hmm. yeah, you don't know any of this until you try it. And, and or even something to grab onto to get some leverage yeah, too. Yeah, so a lot of times uh, it's not there. Right, a, a grab rail. And those ladders, um, many of them are prone to getting stuck. They don't get deployed mm-hmm. for years. They live in a very corrosion prone environment under the swim platform. And now when you go to pull it out, I can't, Doesn't with work. all my might, I can't deploy it because mm-hmm. this telescopic mechanism it has rusted or, or corroded. So testing it periodically and again, proving that you can actually do it. Uh, I do have a video uh, on that subject on, on my website. We'll put all the links down in this yeah, video. All these I'll, things I'll here. share it, but uh, definitely uh, worth testing. Uh, the, the other thing too, uh, Steve, is I think a lot of people just make assumptions, right? A lot of assumptions. All right. If somebody falls over, I'll just pull them over. You know, mm-hmm. I'll pull them up. Yeah. Now, perfect example. Forget about pulling somebody up. You know, maybe you have the parent strength where you got the younger kid, you could grab them or whatever, you know, for the moment. But um, we had to go retrieve a cushion that blew off in a thunderstorm. Down here in Florida, they just pop up out of nowhere. And you, you get into the routine of how to handle it when you're out there. You don't panic when that dark cloud comes, right? So, uh, but a cushion blew off and then we were able to go downwind and we made it a good, uh, you know, man overboard rescue thing to, you know, rescue the cushion. And maybe a cushion, maybe four feet long by two feet wide. Trying to get that out of the water with the wind blowing just at a, at, and the, from the swim platform, almost at the level of the water, trying to pull that out. It took two grown men, myself, maybe I'm weak on this, but there was a younger guy that was helping me too, to get this water soaked thing out. It was really hard to do. Now imagine you've got, you know, a 200 pound guy in the water. It's, you know, and if it was pitching and rolling a lot, you know, now you're going to have three people overboard mm-hmm. and you got real yeah. problems. So people need to know that they've got to have, yeah. you know, things on board to get people back well, in. And, and the, the age old problem is, you know, a cruising couple where uh, the man falls overboard and, uh, you know, they're in their sixties or seventies and, uh, a, the other person needs to know how to run the boat. That's critically important. Right. And, and again, it could be man or woman. It doesn't matter. But but both people need to equally know how to run the boat so they can come back and get the person. And how do you get them back on the boat? And if it's a, you know, 200 pound guy and a 120 pound woman, she's not going to pull him back up onto the boat. So nope. that, you know, that needs to be uh, thought about in right. advance. It needs, to be, right. it needs to be addressed. But these are things that you have to talk. Going back to the fire second, Steve, because it is my main concern on the water. The mm-hmm. engine goes, throw the anchor mm-hmm. off, whatever the mm-hmm. case is. Mm-hmm. You're out at sea. You probably oh, should have and, a sea and by the way, you, you asked about, you gave the scenario, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just to, to sure. because it's relevant, you mentioned the bow thruster and, and the potential for fire there. Um, mm-hmm. It's not typical to have a, an automatic fire suppression system in a bow thruster compartment. It happens. Some some, some builders do that, mm-hmm. but it's it's rare. I wouldn't tell anybody not to do it but I wouldn't say you had to do it. But what I would say sure. is smoke detection in that space is valuable mm-hmm. because bow thrusters are very high current, big motors. You can't have failures. And often that will, 
you'll have smoke in a situation like that long before you have a fire uh, in okay. a valve thruster. So having having mm-hmm. smoke detection in compartments that have uh, heavy duty electrical equipment like that that is very high current uh, is you know uh, makes good sense. Uh, and again, it's cheap. Sure, we saw this. Um, so because I started thinking about that, you know, once you start pulling the the safety loose thread, yep. line, right? yep, yep. you go, oh my God, how underprotected I am, right? Yeah, yeah. So we started looking at all the, you know, when you tr- if you pull off a few panels, there's nothing but wires and junction box, you know, or breakers. They're all over the place, places you'll never get to. Fires mm-hmm. could start in there. By the time you see a flame and it's behind there, get off. <laughs> there's yeah. nothing you can do. I found this company... Uh, Protang, I think it's called. I think they're over in um, Fort Lauderdale area. They've got these uh, tubes um, that um, in the event that they burn through, they, you know, they blow out a, a certain uh, you know, you know, chemical fire suppression. Yeah. yeah. And I know that they were, they, they use them a lot in RVs. And um, so I was, uh, I was in, I was, impressed enough with it and i like the idea enough that i put it in have you ever come across these things i don't it looks like it would work but i figured it was another level of um you know the fire like you said the fire is the biggest thing and even if the fire is out of control you want enough time to be able to get that life raft in the water before that burns up you know so what's your opinion Uh, on things like that and I don't know that company specifically, but there's another company that has had a product that sounds like what you're describing, mm-hmm. uh, Seafire, which makes marine fire suppression mm-hmm. systems. A long time ago, over 15 years ago, I would say, introduced a product called the Stinger, which is a fixed fire suppression bottle that has a tube connected to it that you can route mm-hmm. wherever you want. And uh, if that tube burns through or melts, it discharges the agent wherever the, the you know, the fire has started. So I, I like that product. I use it mm-hmm. on generators in particular because you can put it inside mm-hmm. the enclosure of a generator. Inside the generator, right. You can run it with wiring harnesses. Uh, so, and that it's proven that again, that product has been out for a very long time and, uh, and, and I like it. Um, I will caution people though, until you remove the source of heat in an electrical fire, a fire extinguishing agent, it might buy you time. And as you said, if it's mm-hmm. enough time to get to the life raft or the tender, then maybe right, that, right. that's it. That's all you need. Um, but electrical fires really can't be effectively fought until you de-energize them. So as a result, mm-hmm. I'm very big on uh, disconnect switches, especially on high current devices, bow thrusters, windlasses, mm-hmm. cranes, inverters, anything that draws a lot of DC, in particular current, where there's a potential for fire, you need to be able to shut that off because until you do, you're, you're fighting a fire where the heat source is remaining. It could be remaining active if it's a short circuit. Sure. Uh, so disconnect, no, which is you're, you're frightened right. with that in that situation. But that that the description of that product you mentioned, again, that one I'm not familiar with, but Seafire's Stinger product mm-hmm. is available and, uh, and I have used it in a number of uh, installations. Uh, so I've never, I've never had to have one actually work so uh mm-hmm. but i'm presuming they would and uh yeah and i think i've it. seen them like uh, i think they use them on uh i think they use them on some aircraft i think they use yeah. them for um uh race cars things like yes. that where you, where you can have to, 
So it makes a lot of sense. And so when you put the fire detection, the, the smoke alarms in the walls or in these compartments, are you wired up to the main system or are they just uh, yeah. fire boy, you know, you know, uh, first alerts? Good, what good are question. they? Good, it's a good question. So if it's a boat that's being built, I can specify mm -hmm. a central station smoke detection system. So you can use one of the vessel monitoring systems like Maritron, for instance, they have uh, smoke detectors and carbon monoxide detectors that you can wire into their system uh, so that when it, it, it uh, smoke triggers a particular sensor, you'll get an alert on your, uh, on your main display and, and on your remote displays saying there is a fire in the lazarette or there's a fire under the helm station. So that's the sort of the Cadillac of smoke detection systems where it is central sure. station and the fire suppression companies and there are several, um, and I, I don't, I'm not going to name them because I don't want to leave anybody out, but there's four right, or five in the marine industry that do this. I mentioned one a minute ago. They have uh -huh. central station type smoke detection, so you could use one of theirs. And, and in many cases, those are classification society approved. So if it's a big yacht and it's a classed vessel, you actually have to use one of those. But for the average, you know, 60 foot and under non-crewed vessel, you can have central station smoke detection and carbon monoxide detection. And the beauty of that is not only is it going to tell you where the fire is, it'll tell you there's a fire or smoke on the boat, even when you're not aboard, because all of those mm -hmm. systems have the ability to remotely alert you to any alarm. So you can get a right. text message on your phone saying, hey, in the engine room on your boat, there's smoke. You can have somebody get there, you know, right away and potentially catch something before it becomes a fire. So I, I love that kind of a system. But having said Steve, that, what does something yeah. like that cost, though? What does uh, something know, if, like that cost? If you got, yeah, if you've got a sixty footer and you want to put this stuff around, how much does yeah. that cost for someone? If you're doing a full vessel monitoring system anyway, that's just an add-on component. So sure. I, I will tell you that it's an ex the exception for me to build a boat today that does not have a full monitoring system. So it's likely you're going to have that anyway. So to add the smoke detection component of it, it's it's thousands of dollars, but not tens of thousands of dollars. Okay. To have the full you know vessel monitoring system, it could be 50000 and up. But again, sure. most new boats are getting some kind of monitoring system. And that runs the gamut. They can go from simple to very complicated, but it's not exorbitant. But if you don't want to do that or the boat's already built, you can put household interconnected alarms in. So the alarms that talk to each other that you buy in a package of three at Home Depot, you can sure. use those on boats. There's no reason not, not to. They have batteries, of course, which you have to change, but you can set them up so they'll communicate with each other. So when they're in remote locations like a lazarette, or an engine room mm -hmm. or under a, a dash, you know, the fly bridge, if, if that one senses smoke, it, they all go off and you know that you've got, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a fire or a potential fire someplace. So in, in my mind, every boat needs to have those at the very least of sure. have smoke detection. And, and again, for a, you know, a, a 50 or 60 foot boat, if you want to do the full Magilla, and I've, I've got an article on this, I've written about this many times, but I have, a, you know, a few mm -hmm. articles about smoke detection and how to use it and where to place it, um, that could have 12 or 14 smoke alarms. And some built boat builders used to be freaked out by that. They're not so much anymore when I would say, okay, here's the list of all the places I want them. Like, what? 
And I would say, look, mm -hmm. it, it's 40 bucks. It's $50 for the smoke detector. Why would you be skimping here? Put it behind an electrical panel, put it over the battery bank, put it over the bow thruster, places yep. where we are most likely to have fires. Put it in the engine room, of course. So it's very doable. It can be done very inexpensively now. Boat owners can do it themselves. I mean, you can you can set these up, you know, sure. as easy as you would in your home. I, I'm hard pressed to understand any boat that does not have a smoke detector today. It's not it's not the law. Mm -hmm. It is required for ABYC compliance, but that's voluntary. But uh, you, you wouldn't have a house or an apartment today without it. So, right, uh, it remains it's a bit of a mystery. So there, the carbon the carbon monoxide detector component of it too. You know, yeah. some people with diesel engines say I I don't need that or you know whatever. Well, and it's well, what about the guy the neighbor who's got a gas generator next yeah, to you that you suck yeah. in the fumes? In a manner, they are correct. This is little known, but diesel sure. engines do not produce enough carbon monoxide to be lethal. I, I'm I'm on the hunt for a single case of carbon monoxide poisoning from a diesel engine. I have yet to find it. Truly, I, I can't find one because I've gone out there saying that 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 I don't think it's possible. But regardless, yes, there mm -hmm. have been people have died from carbon monoxide on their boat that the origin was another boat. That has happened more than mm -hmm. once. So as a result, ABYC says if you have they have a criteria, but essentially if you have an enclosed cabin, you have to have carbon monoxide detection. Mm -hmm. If you have an LP gas stove, that that is a carbon monoxide source. So that, that's yet another reason to have it. But even if you have no carbon monoxide producing devices on the boat, uh, a vessel alongside you or upwind of you even, you know, you've got your hatches open sure. at night, got a guy running a generator all night and the wind is coming down on you. It can bring enough carbon monoxide into the boat to, to be, to, to harm people, if not kill them. So yes, every boat. Yeah, needs I it. didn't know that about, I didn't know that about the diesel myself. And then I did hunt around and I've read some story about some trucker who had the exhaust I've read that. going. I've read that. I've read that. Well, that's the only story I can find. And there's debate as to whether it's actually the carbon monoxide that killed that guy or, you know, the, the yeah, diesel. It was something else, right? It was, or, you know, yeah, I, I've read that. I read that like story. sucking it in and the it still didn't one. get. But, uh, the only one, yeah. I, the worst part about the diesel exhaust is that, it, 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 it could, it could make you sick. Uh, yes, yeah, I was actually absolutely. out on the water. A friend of mine, we were out fishing and they, it was maybe five footers or something, nothing more. And the first day we're out, the mate who was there, who's been with him for years, uh, got sick. It's like, and I'm on the other side of the boat and I'm like, it's not too bad, but all right, we'll go in next day. I'm fishing on the side. He was fishing. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't, this is, this is not normal. I, wow. I feel horrible. Yeah. Come in, pull the boat out, you know, when he was winterizing. And the guy calls me up. He's like, uh, hey, Rick, you're not going to believe this. I had like a big exhaust leak in my engine. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> all right. Yeah. I should have known it when I've seen all the oil water sloshing <laughs> around the <middle>, you know. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, yeah, that stuff will get you, you know, it'll at least get – get you somehow, but, uh, maybe not lethal, but it, but it was, yeah. it is interesting how that, that won't do it to you. So, yeah. Yeah. um, so S S Steve, one other thing I think we wanted to just cover, I know we've gone over a bunch of things. Um, what are you finding on, uh, Oh, the one other thing that was important to, to some of the, our, our customers who called in wanted to know oil analysis, why do they need to do it? 
-hmm. Why, um, you know, do they have to really change their oil, you know, every year? Mm -hmm. If they use the boat mm -hmm. for 100 hours, do they really need to change the oil? Mm -hmm. I know I've got mine set up on a 200-hour annual schedule to do it. I think it's overkill, but I'm just trying to stay within the means of, you know, within the, the range of the manufacturer's requirements. Mm -hmm. How do you get that? Can you legitimately extend the life of that oil? And mm -hmm. what would you need to do to make sure you're not harming the engine or voiding your warranties? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's an interesting subject. It's something I'm fascinated by and have been for a very okay. long time. And when I was a uh, a teenager, I was a sea cadet. And one summer I spent aboard a destroyer in uh, Charleston that was based out of Charleston. It was high adventure for a 15 year old, 14 year old <laughs> kid. And, uh, I remember going, you know, walking down a passageway and, and looking into a compartment and there was a, you know, a, a sailor in there with all these glass vials, you know, lining, you know, the, the bulkheads. And I walked in and I, you know, said, what is this? And he said, it essentially gave me you know, a little briefing on, on fluid analysis. And he said, we take fluid from every, you know, every piece of machinery on the ship and, and analyze it. I, I didn't understand any of that, of course, at that age, sure. but it, it planted a seed of, uh, of interest for me. And <clears throat> as I, you know, uh, found my path through the marine industry, uh, I, I eventually was sort of reintroduced to that and recognized the value of it or the potential value. Um, I will say that uh, fluid analysis, you know, uh, crankcase oil, transmission oil, coolant, uh, hydraulic fluid, all of those can be tested and are tested on, on uh, you know, seagoing vessels. And uh, that approach, unfortunately, does not have a great reputation in the recreational marine industry almost entirely because it is not well understood by the people who are doing it. So mm -hmm. the people who are taking the samples frequently take them incorrectly. The people who are tasked with interpreting the results often are untrained. You know, just because you're a mechanic doesn't mean you can look at an oil analysis report and, and, and interpret it. Uh, and, and what happens in most cases is the mechanic looks at it and says, well, it's green. So yeah, it's okay. Go ahead. You're good. Mm -hmm. Or it's yellow. Uh, we have a problem. Um, and, and that unfortunately is not the right way to do it. I see mm -hmm. errors made, you know, last week. I mean, that, that's how frequently I see this, where a client sends me the oil analysis report from the survey and I say, well, the mechanic didn't fill in what's called the lube time, which is the most critical number in the entire and all the information you provide with your sample is how many hours are on the oil. Because that is what drives the algorithm for the lab to say, well, here's how much contamination you can have. If the oil has 10 hours on it, the threshold is very low. If it has 210 hours on it, it's higher. So mm -hmm. if they don't know what it is, the lab is either going to assume it's new oil and they're going to say, well, any amount of contamination is too much. Or they'll attach an arbitrary number like 100 hours to it. And maybe that's close. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's got 400 hours on it. Maybe it's got 50 hours sure. on it. So the lube time, you know, if you, if you don't look at that report and scrutinize those numbers, you're just looking for the red, yellow, or green, you, you could be misled by it. And frequently people are. And, and brokers, you know, often dislike it because it can kill a sale. And sometimes, it, you know, illegitimately, there's not a, it, it's been in, sure. misinterpreted or the sample was taken incorrectly. 
and it comes back flagged and the, the buyer walks and the you know, seller of the boat is saying that yeah, boat's fine. You know, the engine's fine. What do you mean? How could that be? And it turns out that the mechanic who took the sample dragged the sample tube across the bottom of the oil pan and it dredged up, you know, a bunch of sediment and now looks like it's a really bad oil sample when it's not. Or, or he used or she used the same sample tube to draw oil from two engines and two generators and two transmissions. Now it's, now it's, it's cross-contaminated. So there's a lot right. of ways that you can do this wrong. <clears throat> and you will also hear many people say, well, unless you have a history of sampling, it's, it's, it's invalid. That's not mm -hmm. true. If I draw a single sample from an engine and I know how many hours are on the oil and I send all that into the lab and it comes back and says it's contaminated with antifreeze, I don't need any history to know there's a problem. You know, antifreeze is not supposed to be in oil. So right, that, right. Is a, that is a valid, you know, one snapshot. Do you want to take another? Sure. Let's be sure. Let's let's do it one more time and, and be certain. But you don't have to have years worth of analysis to know. There's no trending mm -hmm. for antifreeze contamination. It should be zero all the time. Right. So I warn people, don't don't you know let anybody dismiss it. And the people who are usually saying that are the ones who have had issues with, you know, misinterpretation and saying, ah, you can't, you can't believe that stuff because it's never right. And the engine's fine. And they're saying there's a problem. And I ran it for another, you know, 500 hours. Sometimes their lack of uh, confidence in it is, is valid, you know, because they, they've mm -hmm. had experiences. So what I, I'm on a mission to try to train people to say, do it the right way, learn how to, analyze it, uh, use a lab where you can call them and ask questions and, and find mm -hmm. out, you know, what does this mean when it says, well, this is elevated and it's asking me to resample in 50 hours. Uh, what, 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 why, you know, why do they think I should do that? And what's the potential and what's the source of this kind of metal? And, uh, I'm not saying everybody who practices oil analysis has to become what's called a tribologist. That's what those are people who study oil are called. <laughs> you don't have to do that, but you need to know something about it. But above all else, if you are taking those samples yourself and sending them in, you need to make sure you're using the right sampling technique and that you're providing every bit of information that is requested on that form that goes with that oil. I do have a video on my website that demonstrates this on how to take the sample and talks about some of the common mistakes that people can make. Uh, and and if, you are, if you are a believer in oil analysis like I am, then you can actually install... Uh, a valve on the equipment on engines and generators that allows you to take a sample without a vacuum pump or tubing, because those are frequently areas of contamination. The sampling valve is the best way to do that. So I tell people, if you're, if you're going to buy into this and do it regularly, put the sampling valve on your engine and you don't need a vacuum pump. You don't need to buy rolls of tubing. You can just, while the engine is running, you squirt a little bit of oil into the sample bottle and that's it. Uh, so I, I, so, Steve, am, on that, does that affect any warranties? Are you modifying the engine? Would Caterpillar or Man give you a problem the, with that? The only way that, you know, and I'm glad you brought up this subject because this is another area of sort of common misconception about warranties, that if you do anything to an engine, the entire warranty is invalidated. If you mm -hmm. put a sample valve on an engine and that valve fails and all the oil is pumped out of the engine in 30 seconds and the engine seizes, yes, you're not going to have a warranty on that failure. 
because the engine manufacturer is going to say, that's not our valve. We didn't put it on there. So no, your warranty will not be invalidated if you do that, unless it's the cause of a failure that that, then the the manufacturer can legitimately say, we're not covering that. So oil and oil sampling valves are put on new engines all the time and the valves are over-engineered. So they will not fail. You know, they're specifically designed for a critical application. They're used by the military. So if I, so if you, if somebody wanted to do this, right, let's say you wanted to go and do this, um, Sorry, always phones coming up. Um, <laughs> if I, uh, whatever, I've cat engines. If I called up Caterpillar or the, and I asked them, hey, do you have the, the right valve for this? Where do you put it? Would they be able to guide me? Would they be able to give me the proper parts? They, they, would, they would probably install it. You know, and and okay. if they stocked it, they might sell it to you. I, I they would. I mean, I don't think they would refuse. Uh, okay. You know, a lot of commercial applications use these valves. So if it's a Caterpillar dealer, they're probably seeing these things all the time on commercial vessels and and, and stationary equipment and and things of that sort. So it wouldn't so be wouldn't foreign that in to and them. of itself. Yeah, in general, I have a rule. Like even if even if I could do it. When it comes to these things, I'll be like, let me get the manufacturer. So yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, within. Yeah. if you go to yeah. a, a Caterpillar uh, dealer and say, hey, guys, I want you to put this valve in, put it in the right way in accordance with their with Caterpillar's right. requirements. Right. Yep. And that that does fail. Yeah, then it would be on. I mean, be if the hardware failed, you know, it would probably sure. be between them and the manufacturer of the valve. But if they did it all. Sure you would be on firmer yep. ground to say, Hey, I trusted you guys to do right, this. Right. You, you do this all the time. So yes, you could, you could do that. Absolutely. And again, I have many clients who, who order the engine with it. You know, we're building a new boat and they say, when we order the engine, I want sampling valves on the engine and the engine dealer puts them on before he ever takes possession of the boat. So you can do that. Your, your service is absolutely invaluable. I, I would just say that anybody who's looking for to go and build a boat from the beginning, if they can hire you, hire you because <laughs> no, uh, no I, I mean, and listen, don't take my word for it. Go out and look at Steve's stuff on the, on the web, his videos. Once you see how he methodically steps through the things that are of real concerns, you'll get in the groove of it. If you're, you'll understand it and then you'll be able to, and you don't have to be enamored with Steve, but you could see that he's taking a logical approach to things and it's something that makes sense. And I've seen the videos. I think they're I think they're great, uh, super helpful. You put out these pictures too, by the way, and you go, mm-hmm. "What's wrong with this situation?" I'm like, I don't know. Why don't <laughs> I know? <laughs> right? Why do, some I get? Yeah. Some of them I get. I'm like, yeah. "Oh wow, this is great." But others, I have I'm to like, put some easy I, ones in there once I in a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, to be able to do these small things especially in the build process. If I go out and I buy a boat from scratch, which I want to avoid absolutely at any cost, sorry. Um, <laughs> I'll definitely be using it on this, but if people are looking to, to, to put together a boat and they need somebody to go in and, and through the manufacturing process, you will stop so much junk for no reason. Sometimes things are put on boats because they're rushing and they do it the way that they're not supposed to. It just happens. And it happened a lot in COVID as well. It was just like madness. Um, if you can get ahead of these problems in the manufacturing process, you could probably save yourself. It might be an overstatement, depending upon the value of the boat, you might save yourself hundreds of thousands of dollars in maintenance over the course of the the vessel's life. And, and 
peace of mind and uh, yep. enjoyment of the product. You know, if it's more reliable, if you're not cruising from boatyard to boatyard. And again, right. I, I'll, I'll emphasize the majority of builders that I'm working with build a great product. I'm not, I'm not mm -hmm. teaching them how to build boats. And if I have to, that's probably a builder I don't want to work with. I'll be honest. Sure. So if, if it's a builder that is generally knows what they're doing, but in many cases, I'll say, well, why are you doing it like this? They'll say, well, we've done it that way, you know, for 10 years and it, and it's worked. And I say, okay, but there's a better way to do it. And, and, I'll, and I'll show you that. Or maybe you have been doing it that way, but it doesn't comply with the manufacturer's guidelines, you know, of the product. Or it doesn't meet ABYC standards. So let's 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 do both. Let's let's do it, you know, the best way we possibly can and make sure that it meets installation guidelines. I... I, I have lost count of the number of times I have said in an inspection report does not comply with manufacturer's installation instructions. I see that all the time and, and boat builders and boat yards are notorious for this, unfortunately, of saying, well, you know, I, that's the way we've always done it. We've never had a problem. And I say, okay, if, if you insist on that, that means you're warranting that forever, because you know more than the bill, the manufacturer of the product. You're saying you're going to do it differently than you're telling you to, you to do it. Why would you do that? You know, you want the manufacturer's support if there's a failure rather than the owner coming back to you saying, well, you didn't do it the right way. So you've, you got to pay for it. You know, it's not warranty. Mm -hmm. It's, it's installer error. So I, I tell boat owners, if you're taking a boat to someone to have it worked on a boat yard or you're building a boat, you say, well, two things. Where applicable, I want ABYC compliance, and everywhere I want follow the manufacturer's installation instructions. I don't want to look at something and look up the manual and see that it's done differently and have you tell me, well, that's the way we do it, or that's the way we've always done it, or it's never been a problem. I've heard that you know, before. <laughs> the, the people that made the solid rocket boosters for the space shuttle said that we've done it this way, you know, for a lot of launches mm -hmm. and it's worked fine. Well, yep. then it didn't, you know, so, uh, I, I don't, well, you're on it, Steve, <laughs> you're on it. Hey, listen, I think that, uh, with the amount of stuff on boats and the amount of things that I've come across and you've come across, probably go on for a couple yeah. of, we yes, could. <laughs> we could, we could, but, uh, yeah. th this was, this was really, a, a um, very informative. Thanks. Thanks so much for your time on this. You are an expert in this area. You have the, um, methodology and approach to really uh, be a big benefit for any boat owner. Thank you. We appreciate you coming by. And um, well, Brianna, I think, anything else to yeah, throw say Really quickly, I know that we, we really highlighted what you could do for a potential buyer and you know future boat owner, but you have a couple other programs, Stephen. I want to give you a moment to talk about what those are really quickly. Um, Captain's Club, Ready for Sea, what they do, how somebody can find more information about it. Um, and if you wouldn't mind giving us a little bit of insight as to why, well, you and I started because you've been recommending Vessel Vanguard for a long time. Um, have, so just yeah. to, you know, um, I am all about hearing why you recommend Vessel Vanguard. <laughs> so if you don't mind giving yeah. a little bit of a shameless plug. Um, no, I, I don't. I would appreciate it. Yeah, I don't. I, I, it, you know, there are very few products that I, uh, without reservation, recommend. Uh, it's a very short list because my standards are very high. And uh, uh, when the founder of the predecessor to Vessel Vanguard first created his product, Sea Kits, he, when he came up with that idea, he called me out of the blue. I didn't know him. Nobody knew him because he wasn't in the marine industry. 
And he said, I, you know, I have an idea for a product. I'd like to run it by you. Can I meet with you at the next boat show? And I, you know, I get a fair number of those, you know, of, of people who want to, you know, pitch me on something. And I reluctantly said, okay. And I had lunch with him. And at the end, after he had explained it all to me, he said, you know, what do you think? And I said, I think it's a great idea, but I don't see how you'll ever manage the data entry. It's just will be overwhelming. There's so much information to load into this and it's going to change all the time. And I said, so more power to you if you can figure it out, but I'm skeptical. Well, a year later, I wrote an article or maybe two years later, I wrote an article about how great this product is and started it by saying, I was wrong. You know, he did it. He figured out a way to do this. And, uh, and, and you guys have built on that, you know, worthy foundation. And I, because I'm such a believer in predictive and preventive maintenance, I, I now have a way to go to my clients and say, okay, you don't have to know all this stuff because that, that's, an, that's anxiety producing. When you get new boat owners saying, this boat is so complicated, it's going to be so much work for me to just learn all the systems to begin with. How am I going to know what needs to be done? Uh, Vessel Vanguard, you know, fills that gap. And, and in most cases, when I tell people about it, they're like, really? That exists? Yeah, it does. You don't, you don't have to do that. So yes, I, I am a, uh, uh, you know, without reservation. Um, I love the product and I, I am very careful to tell people I get nothing in return. Uh, you know, a long time ago, uh, sea kits came to me and said, look, if you sell it, we'll give you a commission. And I said, I can't do that. I have to remain objective. But if you're willing to give my clients a little discount, I'll take that. And so that's my only mm -hmm. recompense. Uh, but I, I have no dog in the fight other than I, I think it's a great, it's a great product. And it well, people I don't know if you've seen the new product, Steve, but uh, we made it super, super powerful and easy and added a ton more good. stuff. I think you'll, good, I good. think you'll love it. But good. tell us now about your, the, the services yeah, you have so because I'm lining up because I'm going to get you yep. on my boat soon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, one of the, the, the true joys in having started the consulting business was I, when I ran a boatyard for 12 years and I loved it. I, I could not wait to get to work every day. It was, it was a dream job for me. And, and I, I like to say I had a lot of bad days, but I never had a dull day uh, in, in this business. And so it was something new every day and challenges. And, but my, my industry view was this, you know, was, 25 degrees. And, and when I started the consulting business, it went to 180. I, I, anything I could conceive of to help boat owners, I could do potentially from mm -hmm. a consulting perspective. So over the years, I have added a variety of programs. Um, the ready for sea program is sort of a, it's a one day pack in as much as we possibly can answer as many questions as I can for a boat owner, spend a full day on the boat with them, look at, uh, you know, particularly engineering spaces, engine room, uh, critical systems, propulsion, steering, ground tackle, things of that sort, fire suppression, uh, essentially, a, you know, an action packed day of as much information as possible. Uh, in addition to that, I do full vessel inspections, like I described earlier, where which would be similar to if you are buying the boat, but you already own it, and you're saying, hey, we're getting ready to do some serious cruising now. We want to make sure the boat's in the right condition for it. Those typically last two or three days. They include a short haul. They include a sea trial. 
And that's a stem to stern inspection of the boat, uh, which also generates a very detailed uh, report. The reports I write typically are between 100 and 200 observations and 600 to 1,000 photographs. So it's a documentation of all the systems on the boat as well. And you get those photographs as the as the boat owner to keep. And I want to just put it in there for a second because it's important. If people who are not familiar with the surveys, that's not a normal survey. <laughs> it's not. It's what you're talking about doing is exactly what it should be. But in terms of the thoroughness of what you're putting in it, that, that many yeah. photographs, that yeah. many points that you're taking are, yeah. are critical and versus a standard survey that usually takes the guy a couple of hours on the boat and they, then the engine surveyors guys come in, they do a few things and you're all wrapped up in the same day. Maybe you're at six or eight hours. Yeah. Uh, what you're describing, uh, Steve, is the way it should be done. But but it, but it's far more intense than the others taken three days. So I just wanted to add that for people who didn't know yeah. what the norm is. <laughs> let me let me just expand on that for a second. I know we're short on time, but you know surveyors have a job to do, and that is primarily mm-hmm. you know they have to make sure the vessel is sound for insurance purposes and for lending purposes, and that's a valid requirement. And and I tell my clients having a hull survey, we get the best possible hull surveyor we can he or she will be doing their thing at the same time that I'm doing mine. They've got a sort of checklist, you know, they, they know what they need to do. And, mm-hmm. and above all else, they should be testing every single piece of gear on the boat. If they did nothing else, it would be worth that. Everything from nav lights and microwave to autopilot and engine and generator and air conditioning. I want to know it doesn't work. And if a surveyor right. can get through all that, I, I'm really, I'm very happy. If they can add more to it, so be it. I'll take on all that I can get. And some some people will say, well, is the surveyor going to be sort of angry that you're there, like you're looking over his shoulder? Or And I say, no, I, I, I we really don't overlap very much. It's complimentary. Again, they have their thing to do. I, I know many surveyors and I have worked alongside many of them. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm looking at the boat through the eyes of a boat builder and a, and a marine mechanic and electrician more than what a surveyor is doing. They, they have their area of emphasis. So Got it. that, 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 you know, and that's why my reports are different. And people say, well, why aren't you a surveyor too? Well, then I have to meet all the criteria that the surveyors do also. I don't, they let, let them do that. I'm going to sure. do my thing. So I'm, I'm happy to, to be distinguished from what they do or distinguish myself from what they do. Um, other services are, I have a program called the Captain's Club, which is an annual subscription that allows people who are cruising to contact me with virtually any question they have about the boat or cruising or repairs or troubleshooting that they have. It's not a 911, you know, I'm not may not answer the phone at two o'clock in the morning or if I'm in flight or something. It's more of a, hey, Steve, I've had this persistent issue. I've got a vibration. I've got a noise. Um, I'm on my way into a boatyard to have some work done. And I have, you know, some questions for you before I give them the job. Uh, I'm your technical, uh, you know, uh, support network uh, with that program. Um, I do uh, something called the uh, refit assist. So if you're planning a project, you're going to, you're going to do a repower. Uh, you're going to do some big fiberglass repairs, some core work. You can do electrical uh, upgrade or refit. And you want my guidance through that. 
Um, it's not project management. It's more remote support. I will go to the boat and look at it if that's necessary. But in most cases, it's people saying, hey, I just want to be able to talk to you because I, I have an idea of what I want to do. Um, the boatyard is suggesting something else and I need to know, you know, wh which way to go. Uh, or do you have a recommendation for a product? I'm, I'm trying to achieve this goal. Um, I want your input on this. So that that's what the refit assist does. And with all of the services that I offer, nothing is charged by the hour. I'm, I am adamantly opposed to that because I'm a believer in quoting in the industry. I have to practice what, what I preach. So I quote all of my services and it's a, for a fixed period of time, typically. So a new boat build project could be a three year long project. A refit assist uh, program could be 30 days. Uh, so it, it all mm -hmm. depends on the type of product product project that it is. So all the things that you have out there, Steve, <clears throat> for the boat owners who are not sure, who are frustrated, these services that you mentioned are invaluable. And having done refits myself, which you have to be a little off to even embark on <laughs> to begin with. I try to talk uh, people out of refits, by the way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but if they I refuse, uh, I'll help there's them. Some, yeah. There's some thrill to it as well, right? But having there, I can't tell you how many times it was like, do we want to put this system in? Is this still any good? Is, is you know, should we? Is this worth upgrading? Mm -hmm. You know, you could buy the latest and greatest five, every five minutes in the marine industry. Is it worth doing this? Uh, right. Is this system work? Is it worthwhile, you know, repowering that? Just having somebody who's uh, doesn't have skin skin in the game in the in the you know in getting money from that whatever's uh, purchased, right? Uh, and knows what they're talking about. Um, uh, is, is again, an invaluable thing. So whatever your services are, I'm sure the minimum would be tenfold uh, return to your client because um, you can go, uh, boat yards, uh, not that they're trying to, you know, stick you with thing, but they're going to push the latest and greatest. And, um, and that bill can go up really fast. Um, and, and, and you could leave with a lesser product uh, by the time you get out of there. Right, so, right, right. I, I, so, you know, I, I do consult for the marine industry as well. And so, uh, uh, for boat yards, uh, and, and try mm -hmm. to teach them how to, how to have happier customers. That's how I describe it. You know, when I ran a boat right. yard, the last thing I wanted to do was argue with my customers. And so mm -hmm. we put systems in place to try to avoid, mm -hmm. Uh, misunderstandings and dissatisfaction and, and, you know, bills that were much higher than anticipated. So I, I try to, you know, get the marine industry to see the light on some of those things. I, I lecture at industry events, but I do one-on-one -on -one consulting with, with uh, boat builders and uh, boat yards and, and marine industry, uh, you know, outfits to, to try to, um, I, you know, my, our goals are the same. I, I want the mm -hmm. end product user to be really happy. So I want them to be happy with the boat. I want them to be happy with the industry. And I want them to tell their friends how great it was so they'll stop playing golf and, and buy a boat instead. Uh, so we all have the same mission, um, but the marine industry sometimes can lose sight of the, the mm -hmm. destination. You know, they're looking at the hood ornament, which was, hey, we just got to get this boat out of here rather than, hey, overall – we need to have these people be really happy with this process. Nobody likes being in a boatyard, but they want to be treated fairly and well. And if they, they are, then they're going to enjoy it, you know, that much more. So, so the same thing that always works for any successful venture, customer right. first. 
Right. <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. Well, it was Steve, this has been great. Thank you for this information. We'll, we'll put all the links to your Absolutely. Uh, websites and to the videos that you mentioned in this. Okay. And uh, Rhiannon, you have anything else to finish off? No, I'm super grateful. And I knew that this was going to happen. So I loved seeing you two just naturally roll into it. Steve, I love meeting you. The minute that we walked into IBEX, the conversation just naturally <laughs> flowed. So I'm impressed yeah. with everything you've done, thank your you. love of the industry you. and your due diligence. So thank you for making you. the time. Thanks. Uh, Rick, always grateful for you. And uh, gentlemen, well done. I'm looking right. forward to putting this off to this industry. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. We appreciate it. Take care. <laughs>